Well, as I mentioned earlier, the guys from Adult and Teen Challenge Illinois, as it turns out, were not able to be here today. So instead, we're going to take just a few moments uh, in the remainder of our service time and get back to the story that we've been following together. The story about Abraham uh, and his family and how that connects to us, the heirs of the promises. I'm going to ask the tech booth to make one quick little adjustment here, and that is the TV that I'm looking at is fritzing out. Would you mind just turning it off so it doesn't bother me? That'd be great. I keep looking there thinking, oh my goodness, what's going on? Uh, The ones that you guys are looking at appear to be fine, but that one in the background was just kind of flipping and flopping and doing all sorts of things. And uh, I just got out of a really cold bath of water. I don't think I could hold my concentration through all of that. (laughs) Maybe we better pray before I preach anymore. (laughs) Get into the Word. Father, we ask your anointing would be upon the word as it's proclaimed in this place today. Thank you, Lord, for sending your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son. Thank you, Lord, for inviting us into your presence today. Minister to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last Sunday, we read about the, the death of Sarah and Abraham. Uh, we'd followed them through the course of their life, their story in the book of Genesis. We got to the portions that described how they each passed away. And we took that opportunity to just kind of look back, memorialize their lives. I, I, I hope if you were here and, and listened to the scriptures that we read together, you would agree with me that the best memorial that we could make to Abraham and Sarah would be to describe them as giants of faith. That's certainly the way the Bible itself remembers them. Thousands of years after they lived, the authors of the New Testament described Abraham and Sarah and said, what was unique about this couple is that they were people of tremendous, tremendous faith. And a big part of that, the reason why we arrive at that conclusion, is that both Abraham and Sarah passed away having not seen the fulfillment of the promises that God had given them. They knew that God had made promises, but they passed away without fully seeing the fulfillment of those promises. But that didn't dissuade them, that didn't frustrate them, because they also passed away with the deep, deep conviction that God would, in fact, fulfill those promises. It just wouldn't happen during their lifetimes. And that's why the issue of inheritance is so important here. That's what we've been talking about again and again, and that's why it matters. The promises of God delivered unto Abraham and Sarah, many of those promises are actually still in play. They're still outstanding, aren't they? That's why we've talked so much recently about what it means for us we who are in Christ Jesus, to be known as heirs of the promises. Did you recognize that what we celebrated a few moments ago in this service was the initiation process of two more heirs to the promise? And that's what the passage that we've been reading from Galatians, we've read it each of the past several Sunday mornings, that's what it says. We've read Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. But if, if we back up just a couple of verses, it's talking about water baptism. It's talking very specifically about water baptism. Let me read to you from Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. It says, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. 
There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. This is the part you've heard over and over. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Do you recognize the process that's laid out there for us? Water baptism goes to identity in Christ. You're no longer this or that or the other thing. You are a new creation in Christ, and that makes you an heir of the promise, step by step by step. Those are the dots that the Apostle Paul is connecting for us. That means that today, Today, the innumerable followers of Jesus Christ throughout history, throughout the ages, they represent the heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham. But none of us who are here today, none of us is the first heir. The first heir to the promise was Isaac, the child of the promise. And so it's his story that we want to pick up on today. In order to do that, we have to rewind just a little bit to Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis chapter 24, Sarah has already passed away, but Abraham has not. Abraham must sense, though, that his time is coming soon. It seems obvious as we read the text that he recognizes that he's not going to live to see the fulfillment of everything God has told him about. Now, I wonder, I mean, maybe earlier in Abraham's life, he thought of himself just as a recipient of God's promises. But now, at this point in his life, with the advantage of wisdom on his side, he understands that he is not merely a recipient of God's promises. He is first and foremost a steward of the promises of God. He is a caretaker of the promises of God. In modern parlance, he is a trustee of the promises of God. He holds on to those promises for a while. He takes care of them, but he will ultimately pass them on to those who come behind. And from Abraham's perspective, that begins with his son, Isaac. You know, really... You and I are no different. From as many generations as occupy the world until Jesus returns, our job is to steward the promises of God. We care for them. We live in them. We stand upon them. And then we pass them along to those who come behind us. That's what a good heir does. We've said we're heirs of the promises. Well, a good heir receives their inheritance and then cares for it so that they can likewise pass it along. In the mid-1800s, the wealthiest man in the United States was Cornelius Vanderbilt. He was a shipping and railroad tycoon, and he amassed a fortune that in today's dollars would be worth more than $200 billion. Can I just clarify that's not $200 million? I mean, 200 million is some nice change between friends to Cornelius Vanderbilt. No, Vanderbilt's fortune by the time he passed away was worth more than 200 billion in today's dollars. Let me put that into perspective for you. Jeff Bezos, it's estimated today, is worth about 25% less than that. Jeff Bezos is only 
only worth $150 billion. Vanderbilt was worth $200 billion. I just want to say that again because it makes me feel kind of weird. $200 billion, that's what he was worth at the time of his death in the late 1800s. In 1973, less than 100 years after Vanderbilt passed away, his surviving heirs gathered for a family reunion in New York City. There were 120 of them still alive, 120 members of the Vanderbilt family tree. And among those 120 heirs, less than 100 years after the Commodore, as they called him, had passed, not one of them was even a millionaire. The family fortune was gone. It was gone. Not a single heir was worth even a million dollars. Poor stewardship can destroy an inheritance. And as Abraham's life draws to a close, he seems to understand that. As a result, there's one thing that he wants to accomplish before passing away. He wants to find a wife for his son. He wants to find a wife for Isaac. And he goes about that in a way that would have been very common, very natural in the ancient world. You see, this was before the days, if you can believe it, of eHarmony. There was no ChristianMingle.com. There was no way to swipe right on a particularly good-looking Canaanite woman and just slide into her DMs. There was no way of doing any of those things the way relationships happen now. Abraham did what they did back then. Abraham summoned his oldest, his most trusted employee, and he sent him on a mission. He said, you're going to go find a wife for Isaac, and here's where I want you to look. I want you to go back to my homeland, and I want you to look among my relatives. Let's just get it out of the way right now. Everybody go, ew, ew. Okay. Let me actually read to you the conversation between Abraham and his servant here. It's in Genesis chapter 24, verse 3. Abraham said to him, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife there for my son Isaac. The servant asked, But what if I can't find a young woman who's willing to travel so far from her home? Should I then take Isaac there to live among your relatives in the land you came from? No, Abraham responded. Be careful never to take my son there. For the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house in my native land, solemnly promised to give this land to my descendants. He will send his angel ahead of you, and he will see to it that you find a wife there for my son. If she is unwilling to come back with you, then you are free from this oath of mine. But under no circumstances are you to take my son there. If we read on, we're not going to do it together, but as you read on on your own, you'll see the following verses describe how Abraham's servant travels all the way back to the land where Abraham had come from. He, he finds Abraham's family of origin and he meets Rebekah. He meets Rebekah, who is perfect for Isaac. And so he does what men do when they meet the perfect woman. He gives her jewelry. He gives her two bracelets and a nose ring. Can I just pause in the story right there? My daughter came home from college to visit 
last weekend. Next time she comes home, if she comes home with two bracelets and a nose ring that some dude gave her, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> but apparently in the book of Genesis, that's how things are done. He gives Rebecca two bracelets and a nose ring. He meets Rebecca's family. He goes home and meets her mom and her dad. He meets her older brother. And he tells all of them about his mission to find Isaac a wife. They have a discussion, a conversation. They even ask Rebecca for her input, which is actually kind of odd in that ancient culture. And they all agree that Rebecca can travel back with him to become Isaac's wife. So he gives all of them a bunch of gifts now. Now there's a lot of presents, very wealthy, very expensive presents. And he spends the night in their home. The next day, Rebecca sets out with him for the journey all the way back to Canaan. They arrive there safely. She meets Isaac. She marries Isaac. I'm inclined to say, and they lived happily ever after. But... That's actually not how it goes. We'll save that story for another week. That's not the part of the story that I want to focus on. I do have the sense, though, that some of you are still trying to focus on something else. You're trying to figure out the family tree here, aren't you? Let me do it for you. Rebecca is the daughter of Isaac's cousin. That makes her his first cousin once removed. They got married, and the Bible says they immediately moved to Alabama. I mean, it's, it's in the, the message translation. You won't find it in the Hebrew there, but I assure you that's how these things were done in those days. As I said, that's not the part of the story that I want to focus on. I want to instead take a closer look at the passage we read together, Abraham's instructions to his servant. These are the last words that the Bible gives us, attributes to Abraham. After this, we only read about him in the very brief passage that we already looked about describing his death. These are the last things that the Bible tells us he actually said. And I think they show us something important about how the people of God are to be stewards of the promises of God. You see, there was a time in Abraham's life when he was not a good steward of God's promises. He didn't take good care of the promises God had given him. Several weeks ago, we talked about how Abraham sometimes ignored the promises, how he sometimes doubted the promises. Sometimes when he couldn't trust the promises, he chose to take matters into his own hands. But he's not doing that anymore. He's taking care of the promises with an eye toward the future. He's setting Isaac up for success, not merely because Isaac's his son and he loves his son and he wants good things for him. I'm sure those things are true, but that's not all that Abraham's doing here. Abraham is setting Isaac up for success because he recognizes that God's hand is on Isaac in a special way. Isaac is an heir of the promise. And Abraham sees that. And that means there are a few non-negotiable issues for Abraham, and we see that in the instructions that he's given to his servant. When we first read about Abraham's story many, many weeks ago, I showed you this map. This map that I put together of his initial journey, superimposed with the names of the countries as we know them today, just so you might have a kind of a point of reference. We followed Abraham from, from Ur in southern Iraq as he journeyed up to Haran in, in southern Turkey. 
We followed him as he continued along the fertile lands of the fertile crescent down into the city of Shechem, which is in this region of Canaan that we've been talking uh, about. We, we talked about how long it took Abraham and his family to make that journey together. Abraham now is essentially asking his servant to take that same journey, but to go backwards. He's saying to his servant, I want you to retrace the steps that we took decades earlier. I want you to just go back until you find the spot where we left my extended family behind. That's where you're going to find a wife for Isaac. The servant says to Abraham, well, if I find her and she won't come all the way back to Canaan with me, should I bring Isaac back to her? Do you remember what Abraham said? He said, absolutely not. Don't do that. Abraham, in essence, is saying to his servant, I know where this family has been and under no circumstances are we moving backwards. And I think that's the sign of a good steward. Good stewards keep moving forward. They keep moving forward. Do you remember the words of the old hymn? I have decided to follow Jesus. What does it say? No turning back. No turning back. Followers of Jesus have no reason to turn back because they know all too well that where they've been can't compare to what's been promised. Remember, we shared together the words of the author of Hebrews last Sunday. He said this about Abraham and Sarah. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. Good stewards keep moving forward. Abraham knew that the land that God promised was better than Ur, and it was better than Haran. And he knew that because he had experienced Ur and Haran for himself. And he also knew that there was no need for Isaac to have the same experience. There was no value in having Isaac go back just to take the same journey Abraham had. Isaac was an heir of the promise, and that meant that Isaac had the advantage of inheriting the promise from somebody who had already done the difficult work of leaving the past behind. Why would he go back? There's a popular parenting philosophy among people today that suggests that we shouldn't tell our kids what to do or how to behave or what to believe. We should just let them try whatever they want and figure it out for themselves. Will you smile and give me grace while I tell you that's the stupidest pile of nonsense I have ever heard? <laughs> I think there's a few in the room, a few seasoned parents that would agree with me on that. I have a friend by the name of Joe. When he was a teenager, he was playing with his buddies with pipe bombs. And one of them blew off in his right hand, blew about half his hand off. I've watched Joe as an adult as he raised his two kids. And I can tell you with certainty, at no point did he encourage his kids to go find out for themselves how safe pipe bombs are to play with. It's not how we parent. Why would we encourage our kids to retrace our own steps? Why would we invite our children to repeat our own mistakes? 
Why would we force them to regain the same ground that we fought so hard for in our own lives? Doesn't it make so much more sense to steward the gifts God has given us so that they can keep moving forward? Doesn't it make more sense to pass the baton than to go back to the starting line? You may or may not have uh, genealogical children of your own, biological kids in your own family, but remember, you're an heir of the promise. If you're in Christ Jesus today, you are an heir of the promise, and that means you are stewarding an inheritance that will ultimately be left for those who come behind you. Maybe it is your own kids or your grandkids. Maybe it's your neighbor who's watching you closely as they consider their own faith. Maybe it's somebody at church who has noticed you as you journey further and further away from your old life, just as Abraham did. Can I give you this word today? Keep moving forward. Tell your story and share your experiences so that others can join the journey with you rather than going all the way back to start where you did. Church, I gotta tell you, I I believe this. I'm compelled by this vision today. If we do this thing right, if we, the the current iteration of Hobson Road Community Church, if if we steward the promises of God properly, then the next pastor of Hobson Road Community Church is gonna be the greatest pastor this church has ever had. The things that lie in front of this church are going to be so much better than the things that lie behind this church. The victories that this congregation wins in the future are going to make the victories of our past and present look insignificant. Why? Because you and I are living in a generation where we are caretakers of the promises of God and we need to keep moving forward so that we can pass them along to those who will come behind us. Yes, it can be difficult. It can be hard to keep moving forward. Sometimes the going gets tough. We all know what it's like to be tempted to to go back when things get difficult. None of us is as old as Abraham was. Do you remember? He's 175 years old when he died. Nobody here is 175 yet. I mean, you don't look a day over 120, any of that. So, you know, nobody's 175. But you know what? You know what? Some of us have been journeying long enough that we know what it's like to occasionally lose sight of just exactly why we're, why we're striving so hard. Good stewards know that they need to guard against that kind of forgetfulness. Good stewards remember God's promises. They remember the promises of God. You see, there was a reason that Abraham didn't want to give Isaac an excuse to go back to their ancestral homeland. It wasn't because Abraham was a helicopter parent. It wasn't that he was sheltering him or suffocating him. He wasn't being overprotective or controlling. He had a better reason than that to make sure that Isaac didn't go back. I'm going to tell you about the reason, but before I do that, I want to tell you about what I go through each time I, I purchase a plane ticket. When I purchase a plane ticket online, especially when I'm flying alone, as I sometimes do, I get to that screen where it says, click here and choose your seat. You know the screen I'm talking about, right? I don't like that screen because I don't know where I want to sit. You know what I wish? 
I wish that on that screen they could show me pictures of the people who had already chosen their seats. That's what I wish. Show me some actual photos. Give me some data, and then I'll choose where I want to sit. Because here's the deal. I fly coach, and those seats in coach are made for somebody about 15% smaller than I am. And so when I get on an airplane, I mean, there's just some natural ways where some parts of me are going to spill over into the seat next to me. And so I do tend to pick the aisle seat because at least there I can kind of extend the leg out a little bit or put an elbow out a little bit. But there's that moment you have when you're getting on a plane, and you've all been it, you've all had it before. You're getting on the plane, looking at your ticket, trying to eyeball your seat, and you're hoping, you're hoping that your seat isn't right next to mine. Right? I know it. I know it. It's okay. It's okay. You all are hoping that your seat is going to be next to, you know, somebody like, like David. You know, he's tiny. I would like to sit next to David on a plane because I, I feel like I could give you a little elbow business there and you'd be fine with it. You'd be good. There you go. Here's what happens to me on a plane. I get on and I'm looking for my seat and I'm kind of like 27D, where is it? And counting, you know, doing the thing. And I look there and I'm 27D and then I see that in 27E, there's a guy sitting there and he's bigger than I am. And, and he had garlic for lunch. <laughs> Not garlic bread, just straight garlic. <laughs> And now he's tired, and he wants to lay his head down a little bit. It's not going to be a good flight for me. I want to book my flight with a picture of the people who are already sitting there. I want the knowledge that tells me what's going on. Before I pick a place, I want to know the truth about what's happening there. I wish somebody could promise me that the seat that I choose is the perfect place for my journey. Don't you wish the same? I wish somebody had the foreknowledge to see exactly where I should be so that they could help me choose my spot. That's kind of what Abraham had for Isaac. He had the foreknowledge. He knew what God had promised about the land, so he knew where the perfect place for Isaac was. He's not trying to shelter Isaac. He's not trying to control Isaac. He's saying, look, I've already heard God talk. I know what the perfect place is for you. And I don't want to see you make a mistake. You see, that's a good steward. When you remember the promises of God, you're going to be a better steward of the promises of God. And the other heirs of the promises will be blessed because of you. Remember the promises of God. I have one final thought on this idea of stewarding the promises of God. As Abraham's having this exchange with his servant, the servant is understandably nervous about all the unknowns in the plan. This is a great big long journey with a million different variables. He's worried about what's going to happen if he can't find an eligible bride who's willing to return to Canaan with him. He wanted a contingency plan. Do you remember when Abraham used to build his life around contingency plans? Do we remember when Abraham used to work pretty exclusively with contingency plans? Remember Abraham? Well, if Canaan has a famine, I'll just move to Egypt. If these men look threatening, I'll just tell them Sarah's my sister. 
If Lot wants this land for his flock, I'll just go somewhere else. If Sarah can't get pregnant, I'll, I'll just marry Hagar. Abraham built his life on contingency plans. Yeah, and how'd that work out for him? You see, he's not working with contingency plans any longer. He's working with God's plan. And that's what good stewards do. Good good stewards trust God's plan. Not only that, good stewards understand that when things don't happen the way they expect, God is still in control. That's what Abraham says. The steward says, we need a contingency plan. What if this happens? What if that happens? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And Abraham tells his servant, in essence, he says, well, man, slow down. God's got this covered. And then he says, but even if. Ooh, those are the key words in all of these stories, aren't they? But even if things don't work out the way we expect, come home anyhow. We'll just continue to trust God for the next step. Even if, even if, God's got this, but even if it doesn't look like you and I think it's going to look, we'll just keep trusting God. That's what good stewards do. They trust God's plan. I love my church. I know that this room is filled with good stewards of God's promises. I see people here today that have been thoughtful and purposeful about preparing for those who will follow you in the faith. You've contended in prayer for your own children and for your grandchildren. You've contended in prayer for the youth of this church and for the new believers that have become your co-heirs of the promises of God. But if you've done that for long, then along the way you've seen some things take some unexpected turns. Not everything has worked out the way you wanted it to. Not everything has happened the way you thought it was going to happen. Not everything has gone according to plan, has it? Maybe you have a prodigal in your own family. Maybe your family tree looks a little bit less like Isaac, a little bit more like Ishmael. You did your best to steward the promises of God and prepare that child for the precious faith that you found, but they've just not responded. Or maybe, maybe the revival that you've prayed for in your time, it just hasn't come. I mean, sure, it was great to celebrate two baptisms today, but you're believing God for a day when it's not two, it's 200. You're certain that God has promised in the final days he will pour out his spirit on all people. But sometimes it feels like the more you long for that day, the further away it seems. If you identify with that, if you feel like, yeah, that's me, I'd invite you to glean one more insight from Abraham's final plans for his son, Isaac. Follow with me here. Abraham knew that God wanted to multiply his descendants. That was part of the promise, right? And so that meant that Isaac needed a wife. Abraham planned. He knew knew the truth. And he made a good plan. He planned for everything that was needed. He sent his very best, most trusted servant. He supplied the nicest, most expensive gifts. He gave the clearest, most precise instructions that he possibly could. He knew everything he needed to know. And he planned for everything that he could possibly plan for. And yet, even Abraham understood that when all was said and done, 
Rebecca herself was going to have to make a choice. And Abraham couldn't control that choice. And maybe, just maybe, that choice was going to be, no, I won't go. I don't want to meet this guy. But Abraham was compelled that even if Rebecca said no, God could still be trusted. I want to invite you today to reconsider the pain and the disappointment and the discouragement that you may have experienced in your life. Sometimes we talk about the disillusionment. I thought, I thought God had this in mind. But things have not turned out the way I imagined them. If you resonate with that part of this story today, I want to invite you to believe once more, God can still be trusted. No matter what you face today, God can still be trusted. No matter what the diagnosis says, God can still be trusted. No matter what your enemy has said about you, God can still be trusted. No matter what catastrophe has fallen you, God can still be trusted. No matter what crisis of faith or what dark night of the soul you find yourself in today, God can still be trusted. No matter what breaks your heart, if your heart grieves and breaks over the salvation of your family and your loved ones, know this today, God can still be trusted. Keep moving forward. Remember God's promises and trust in God's plan. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for the goodness of your word. We spent time this morning singing about the goodness of God. It chases us. It follows us. We, your people, Lord, find your goodness running after us all the days of our lives. We spent time today celebrating with two in our own family who have said, I want to be initiated into this family. I want to become an heir of the promises of God. And we've rejoiced. Because the inheritance that we share doesn't get smaller and smaller each time we divide it into another piece. No, Lord, it gets greater and greater. It gets greater and greater. This this great inheritance that we have multiplies itself again and again and again as lost people come to faith. We rejoice. And then we find ourselves here in this story. Chronologically, some of us are closer to Abraham's station in life than others. But spiritually, Lord, each of us has become an heir of the promise if we've submitted our lives to Jesus. Each of us recognizes that if Jesus delays his his coming another day, that means there's going to be another day for us to care for this great treasure we've been given. Help us to do that well. Help us to be good stewards of your promises. Lord, remind us in those moments when the challenges of life tempt us to move backwards, beckon to us with that falsehood that says, ah, I wasn't so bad. Remind us in that moment that good stewards move forward. Remind us in those moments, Lord, that 
What lies ahead is greater than what lies behind. Remind us of your promises. Father, with hearts of faith today, we consider the challenges that are yet in front of us. And even so, we say, God, we trust you. You are still faithful. You are still true. You are still trustworthy. And you are still good. Thank you for your blessing on our lives today. And as we're dismissed from this room, bless our time together. Bless our lunch as we receive it. The fellowship that we share. Build your church, we ask. In Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. Amen.